Welcome to Call and Character, a podcast for not-so-casual conversation about calling, culture, and other things that make for lives worth living. My name is Davy Henriksen, and I teach at Valparaiso University and serve as director of the Institute for Leadership and Service, the sponsor of this podcast. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Esau McCauley, a professor at Wheaton College and a regular opinion writer for the New York Times. We'll be discussing the role of religious faith and sacred texts in the political struggle for justice, as well as the ways in which the Bible can be read in transformative and liberative ways. If you're interested in today's podcast and want to hear more, you'll want to check out an interview hosted at a new project called The Liberating Arts. Dr. Jonathan Tran from Baylor University recently chatted with the Yale theological ethicist, Dr. Willie Jennings, about his new book, After Whiteness, An Education in Belonging. Jennings' book works quite well as a pairing with my conversation with Esau today. You can head to www.theliberatingarts.org to find out more. And now, to the conversation. In the current context, ideological battle lines are often drawn between those who take the authority of their religious scriptures and traditions seriously on one side, and those who advocate for social justice and prophetic political witness on the other. Is this divide real? Do the faithful have to choose between scriptural authority and social justice? Or is this a false, even pernicious dilemma? Our guest today argues that the black church tradition with its particular historical ways of reading scripture offers resources to connect the Christian faith with urgent contemporary political concerns. Reading the Bible through the prism of the black American experience offers us a way to rethink theological discussions of race, gender, political resistance, policing, and slavery. Dr. Esau McCauley earned his PhD at the University of St. Andrews and is assistant professor of New Testament at Wheaton College. He is a priest in the Anglican Church, a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times, and a host of the Disruptors podcast, a collaboration between InterVarsity Press and Christianity Today. His newest book is Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope, published by IVP Academic just a couple months ago. So, Esau, it's wonderful to have you on our podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. So you write that uh, Black Christians often find themselves caught in the middle of a battle between white evangelicals and white progressives, and often you feel estranged from both sides. So what are the roots of this, and what does it look like in your own personal history growing up in the Black church? Um, the roots of it are just different accounts of how Black Christians function in the religious narrative of the United States. So you open up many textbooks on, on theology, and they will kind of do, they will talk about the development of evangelicalism, uh, modernism, the fundamentalist um, debate, fundamentalist um, social gospel debate, and they kind of go through history to talk about people like Karl Barth. And then at a certain point, you wake up, and then there's James Cone. You go, oh, there's black people. Then they go, oh, there's women. Oh, there are here are Latina and Latino um, theologians and scholars. And so we're often put in this addendum that like we all kind of show up in the eight, the 1960s and start doing black theology and liberation theology. And like those things are important. I don't want to like downplay those things. I'll talk about how they function in the narrative, right? Well, there are African-American Christians who 
from the beginning, we're trying to make sense of what it meant to be Christian in America. And that unique testimony is often ignored or not taken seriously. And so when you come into um, the academy and you're trying to make sense of what it means to be a person of faith coming from that context, you often seem like you are an alien from another planet and the battle lines are drawn without your input. And you and, and you want to say, well, I, I agree here and I disagree there and I on one side and there's agreements and disagreements on the other side. But it's more it's more of a feeling of, of disorientation. And that is at least how I experience coming into um, kind of white Christian discourse, which is just like disorientation. It's almost like when you imagine someone goes to like the mission field and all of a sudden, like when when, you know, let's say a Ugandan or someone is was evangelized and they say, OK, you need to take a side on the Methodist, you know, Presbyterian debate. They go, well, sure. I mean, that's interesting in its own right, but what about what it means to be a Christian in Africa? The major difference is in our context is there were Black Christians who were functioning in the United States who were asking and answering questions, but those questions were largely ignored. I noticed there's this great line. This is on page 11 of your book. You say, in my evangelical seminary, almost all the authors we read were white men. It was as if all the important conversations about the Bible began when the Germans started to take the text apart and the Bible lay in tatters until the evangelicals came to put it back together again. So I'm wondering what happened in this transition between growing up in in the black church, then going to a a largely white evangelical seminary. What were some of the things that you noticed in that transition? Well, it's, it's hard because what you do is, and this is what I try to, some people feel like they lose themselves and they try to accommodate to the culture. I don't think I ever lost myself. What I, what, I, what I tried to do was play by the rules of their game. So I was like, okay, this is what it means to be a good scholar. I'm going to show you that a Black person can be the best kind of this version of a scholar, instead of asking whether or not the whole enterprise is fundamentally flawed, right? So there's a high, there, there is a certain emphasis on detachment that I noticed in biblical interpretation. So the serious scholars are the people who only talked about the first century and only reconstructed Judaism, the Greco-Roman world and, and cited all the right scholars. And they put together this kind of, this passionate theological analysis that was trapped in the first century. And that is easy to do when like you're living a middle-class life and many of your questions are more existential. What is it, you know, they talk about a lot when I was in some evangelical context back in the, in the early 2000s, of this thing called the God-shaped hole. And the idea was you had everything in your life that you wanted, except for you felt empty and God filled this kind of existential lack. I said, well, no, like I didn't have everything that I wanted because besides God, I had like, there was injustice and racism and um, anti-black violence. And so I wasn't looking to fill a hole. I was looking to make sense of what it meant to be black in America. And so like what, I, what I'm talking about is I think that a lot of Black theology, if I read it right, is theodicy. Like we take seriously like the brokenness of the world that we inhabit and we wrestle with it. And how can you be a Christian given this legacy of what's happened in the United States and Christianity more broadly? And that sense of humility and that sense of a real deep awareness of how difficult it can be for some people to function as Christians in this country, I thought was sometimes lacking. And there was a much greater emphasis on what I call the glory narrative of American Christianity, where 
you know, the 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 lows, the the lows function simply as a starting point so that we can judge our current progress by where we were. And I would say in the African-American context, we don't start with where we were compared to where we are. We start with what we deserve. And what we deserve is equal treatment. And so we're coming to these as a whole. I know the black church and black Christians are on a monolith, but we are coming to these texts asking the question of how do I make sense of being a Christian here and now? And it's the here and nowness uh, and the urgency of the black interpretive tradition that I found really lacking. And like the passion um, and the urgency of black Christianity was sometimes perceived as either uncouth or an interesting thing that you did before you settled down and did real theology. I remember going to seminary thinking so much I need to learn all of these things and then take it back to my community. And then I quickly began to realize all the gifts that my community had to offer to the wider body of Christ. And part of what Reading While Black is, is an attempt to give that gift to the academy and the church. When the Black church tradition reads the scripture, you, you talk about the way in which the theme of liberation is, is front and center because of the lived experience of Black Christians for so many centuries, specifically in the American context. And just a moment ago, you talked about how uh, in the white context, there's a more detached approach to the text. Do you think that, that the dominant white readings of scripture are apolitical or is there, a more, is there just an alternate politics at play uh, that stands in distinction with the Black church tradition? Well, I, don't, I think that the decision to be apolitical serves to keep the status quo in place. So I do think that there is a certain detachment and, and, but that detachment is not without political consequence. So I think that when there is injustice in society, you're either like built, you're, you're, up, built, you're building it up or you're allowing it to stay in place or you're tearing it down. And so I would say that like, there's a lot of biblical scholarship that wasn't very dangerous. And hopefully that doesn't sound too arrogant because I don't want to say that my book is a gift to biblical scholarship. Sure. But what I do want to say is that like, I like biblical, I like, I like scholarship with some skin in the game where it matters how you decide one way or, or the other. So when people read my book and they're mad or they're, or, or they're happy or they go, it, it moves them. That I think that I'm doing what I need to do as a scholar. I think the scholarship ought to move the conversation forward and not to engage in kind of intellectual flights of fancy. So let me, let me give you, let me give you like a concrete example that is open misinterpretation, but I've given it a thousand times. There is an endless stream of books in biblical studies, especially in Pauline theology about justification. And like any biblical Pauline scholar worth his salt has written like, here's my take on justification. You can find hundreds of those books. I mean, it feels like there's an endless stream of them. Now, you can you can answer that question and not really consider what justification did in Paul's own theology. Namely, it brought Jews and Gentiles together on the same basis, trust in Jesus. And then you, know, you don't then go and ask the question after you've talked about Paul's doctrine of justification by faith and ask, well, what does it mean to believe that in a community in our context that separated people on the basis of the color of their skin and what they said a person was? And how does Paul's doctrine of justification rooted in his, his anthropology, and how does Pauline anthropology touch on issues of injustice? 
And you you run into a desert when you begin to ask people who kind of chased Paul's theology all the way down the rabbit trail and came up into our day. Another question is that we, we talked about things like justification, but much less book written about Paul and justice. And how might Paul or Jesus speak directly to issues of injustice? What was Paul's political theology? And, and I don't want to I don't want to um, dismiss the, the the entire stream of Paul and Empire conversation and um, Paul and Paul and Empire and Paul and politics. But that is always seen as esoteric Paul, and mainstream Paul is apolitical Paul. And I want to say that like biblical scholarship that wrestles with these issues are important and deserve attention. And it's precisely those kinds of, of theological and scholarly questions that are supreme interest to many African-Americans. So let's actually dive uh, further down into uh, this, this Pauline rabbit holes. Romans 13, it's a classic text, one that you address pretty early on in your book, uh, which begins with uh, a command for Christians to subject themselves to the governing authorities. Yeah. So often Romans 13 is a text that's used to talk about human government as an instrument of divine authority yeah. such that political subjects or citizens uh, need to submit themselves. And there's a, sometimes a, a sort of authoritarian gloss put on that passage. You argue that the passage is not so authoritarian and actually has something perhaps surprising to say about the use and abuse of police power. I wonder if you could explain how you read Romans 13. Well, but as usual, academics always they're rejecting the question. But <laughs> let me edit <laughs> let me edit the question and put it this way: the fact that the decision to start with Romans thirteen is itself a theological decision that is not warranted in the biblical text itself. What I'm saying is, there's a reason that historically we begun our political discourse with Romans thirteen instead of the Book of Revelation. The Book of Revelation contains a sustained political critique against Rome described as Babylon. This is important, so I need to make sure the audience hears this. It's described as Babylon, and Rome is described as Babylon because what, what John is saying is that Rome is a part of a type similar to the oppressive empires of the Old Testament that are also criticized. So you have an explicitly, obviously it's theological, but a political critique of the Roman Empire. And we don't use the book of Revelation as a starting point for theological reflection. We don't use the prophets as a starting point for political reflection. We use this text. So why do we why why do we make the decision to say that the text the text that most clearly seems to uphold the status quo is the beginning point? So what I'm saying is like anyone who's doing theology or doing biblical interpretation are putting text in order, emphasizing some and downplaying the others. And what I want to say is one distortion that exists in biblical political theology or whatever you want to call it is the is the centering of Romans 13 often in the abstract from Paul's wider discourse. We could talk about what Paul thinks about institutions and powers and structures and the demonic influence, what he said. All of these things are important to think about Paul's political theology. So like, I always like to like put that down first as a marker, because no matter what I say, we decide that all of Christian political theology must run through like Romans 13 first. But what I said about Romans 13 in particular is that Paul makes a statement in verse three, in chapter 12, verse three, for rulers not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. I, I say to people, this is actually the fundamental request that African-American Christians want to make. It is the, the precise critique is when we have done nothing bad, we're often a source, we often experience terror. 
So what Paul says about what the government should do in Romans 13 is exactly what we're requesting. We should, I should not be afraid as a black person if I'm pulled over by the police and I'm actually innocent. The problem actually becomes what happens when this is not the case. But the other thing I want to say about what Paul says um, about the about the state is he talks about how the emperor bears the sword. And when I talk about the sword, and this is a much longer conversation I can't reconstruct here, you got to actually read the chapter. But I talk about how the sword doesn't simply refer to a conquering army, but the policing power of the state, that the emperor had an influence on how the Roman Empire was policed. And in so much as Paul says that the emperor directs the sword, he's actually engaging in a, a, a description of how policing power works. That it's at the behest of the governments in a society. Well, if that's the case, then the authorities are responsible, according to Paul, for the culture of policing. What does that then mean in a democratic republic? Well, we say that we the people govern. Right. We choose our leaders so we can say as Christians in a democratic republic that we're going to say to the people who direct the sword, who direct policing power in our context, that they should make sure that they police people in a way that respects their status as image bearers. The last thing I say about Romans 13 is that Romans 13 has to, as along with any other text in, the, in, a, in a book that spans you know, hundreds of years, which it was written, it has to be read canonically. That even in the book of, of, of Romans itself, Paul talks about Moses and Pharaoh and how God rose, raises Pharaoh up precisely so that he can defeat Pharaoh and obtain glory through the liberation of the people of Israel. So unless you want to say that Paul thinks that Moses was sinful in his rebellion against um, the people in Egypt, that, that means that in the same book, in the same letter that includes Romans 13, there's a depiction of someone who resisted the government. So what is Paul then getting at in something like Romans 13? I think what Paul is really getting at is the limits of human discernment. That in most circumstances, we can't understand the role in which we play in God's wider purposes. And so although God is involved in the lifting up and the tearing down of evil regimes, it is very dangerous when the Christian that cl claims divine sanction for that violence, because that often leads to a distortion of perception. And so I do believe that Paul is not a fan of violent revolution, but not because Paul is about acquiescence, but because Paul recognizes the limits of human discernment. And so I think that a viable reading of Romans 13 in no sense eliminates the Christian's ability to call evil by its name. It doesn't eliminate, especially in the Democratic Republic, for a Christian to vote out regimes and leaders whose activities don't, whose policing directives don't result in people being treated as persons. And it doesn't even remove the possibility that God removes people from power precisely the manifestation of his glory. I think, you know, scripture is often a lot more nimble than most of its readers too. Uh, so this whole theme of, of resistance to political injustice, it's one that, that I've thought about quite, quite often and, and written a little bit about. And it, reading your book on this, uh, it reminded me a lot of a lot of the post-Reformation theories of political resistance, who actually read Romans 13 in very much the same way that you are, which is to say, they looked at this command for political citizens or subjects to obey governing authorities, to obey the emperor or the king. But that begs the question, who is the king? Who is a lawful authority? Yeah. And if, if a king has become a tyrant, an enemy to his uh, or her own people, do 
do the subjects still owe obedience? And, and that raises, of course, a host of questions in the contemporary era. It also was a, a question that was raised in a lot of antebellum um, black resistance literature as well from folks like Henry Highland Garnett and David Walker. So it's, it's, it's a fascinating thing to see you go all the way back to Paul and read Paul almost as a proto-resistance theorist. It's not maybe your typical reading of Paul. Well, I, I think I think that the reason why it's not a typical reading of Paul, well, I, I won't go, I won't go with that part. I'll leave it alone. What I'll say what I'll say is this: it's amazing how Romans thirteen is a central text focusing on black resistance, and I'm even talking about like black general political resistance. Forget about I'm not talking about black revolutionary. I'm talking about just like strong black political critiques. Like let's just pray for our our leaders. It might not be so divisive, but I, I just haven't seen a lot of like every 4th of July us thinking, you know, how do we square like the narrative that we tell about American independence with Romans 13? This, this also raises a question for me of uh, your discipline and my discipline uh, ethics, because uh, your book is a book that's informed very much by a really rich stream of biblical New Testament Pauline scholarship. Uh, but there's usually a disciplinary divide between those who do biblical scholarship, who read Paul closely like you do, and those who do ethics or moral theology, uh, let alone political theology. Yeah. We're supposed to you know, stick to our own lane, we're told. Do you see this divide between biblical scholarship and ethical concerns as problematic? Yeah, it's funny because I get in trouble because people keep asking me, well, what is this book? Because I do. It's like it's it's part it's a little bit of history. Um, I think a significant portion of, of um, exegesis, but also a lot of ethics. I, and you could read Reading While Black as an ethics book. You could. Um, and one day I might actually write a New Testament ethics book. And so I do think that I like to say I wasn't around when they started putting together these categories, so I don't feel bound by it. <laughs> okay. And the other thing, and there's a long tradition of, I think that if I say that like most black theology is theodicy, I would say that most black theology is also public because we just never had the luxury to separate our faith from, or not even our faith, our scholarship from public action. Because there were black people dying in the streets, and you know, under Jim Crow, and, and to the present day, and so we just don't really often have the the luxury to say, "Well, I'm going to stick to this discipline." We say, "What are the tools at hand, and how do those tools help expand black freedom and black opportunity?" And so, when I was writing this book, I remember calling my editor because it used to like the first part; it was about the New Testament. The first when I when I sent in the the, the kind of pitch, and I remember calling my editor say like I can't write this book and just do New Testament. Can I do the Old Testament too? So okay, we can do Old Testament too. And I said okay, I'm all gonna, also going to do A, B, and C. And so I do think that sometimes the silos that we create in the academy result in an impoverished scholarship and interdisciplinary books precisely because they don't they don't play the game that the people want us to play are sometimes criticized. I've also like people that say, well this book is a little bit too much of a memoir. Well it's like, well, you know what? I'm I'm involved. You know, like I'm involved in these questions. And so to pretend like these questions don't arise from my experience, I thought was disingenuous. And so I said to myself, I'm gonna write the kind of book that I want to read, not the kind of book that people want me to write.
You invoke Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham jail as a model of a prophetic call to justice. It, it's a text that I regularly teach to my students and that regularly surprises them because in the present day, King tends to be viewed as uh, relatively safe. We have a, a national holiday for him. He's, he's, as Cornell West describes it, been domesticated in some ways. But if you look at the message that, that King was preaching and the theology that he was drawing upon back in the mid 20th century, it's actually rather radical in many respects. And in fact, as you point out in your book, in King's own day, there was an ecumenical alliance of white moderates. We're not even talking extreme segregationists here, just the white moderates who were opposed to King in the South because of the disruption he was causing. So I want to ask you, what's at stake in reclaiming the Black Christian voice in contemporary society and its resourcing of the theological tradition, even if it's more radical and disruptive than some communities may prefer? I think that one of the things that shaped me the most was actually going back and reading these primary documents. Because I had often thought, well, if I say this in the right words, using the right terms, then maybe people will listen to African-American concerns. And reading King and behind him, Frederick Douglass and others, it, it helped me realize that the Black voice has always been policed. And that Black Christians have most felt themselves when they felt free to say what they wanted to say the way they wanted to say it. And I think it's that moral courage or that theological imagination, which is an important part of the testimony. Because one of the things that you do um, as a thinker or as a scholar, you, you sometimes limit yourself to what's imaginable versus what you think is true. And I think that um, King articulated what he thought was true, even if it seemed radical. And you talk about like, they, 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 they use the language of either the, 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 um, the disnification or turning King into Santa Claus, these this spewer detached quotes about our common humanity. And King did have a lot to say about our common humanity. But I like to tell people, the people who quote like the colorblind, the colorblind passage in, Queen, in King's uh, I Have a Dream speech, don't quote like what King says about black being beautiful. He says somebody said a lot, told a lie one day, where black is associated with everything that is horrible and ugly and, and bad about society. But I want you to know that black is beautiful. I was like, put that on your Facebook and your Twitter feed come um, MLK Day. Well, the other thing that I would say is when he says the black man needs to, to reach inside of his own soul and write his own emancipation proclamation, that we need to understand that I am somebody in this sense of somebody that needs to permeate the black experience. So what I'm saying is we have an edited King and you have an interesting left. You have an edited Frederick Douglass. You have like basically all a significant percentage of black leaders are edited down and smoothed over. So the prophetic edge of their witness is lost. And I would say we, we can't keep that. I mean, we can't keep a lot of the stand. We have to embrace the entirety of these complex figures and try to make sense of how they help us help us understand how to function as Christians in the world today. One of the things that perhaps makes some, you know, white readers or potential allies nervous is is the the way in which lament and sometimes even despair, of course, is uh, riven right through the black experience in America. And you yeah. talk very early on in your book about the struggle between what you call black hope and black nihilism or despair, um, or others might talk about this in terms of Afro-pessimism and black optimism. So I wanna ask you, uh, your subtitle, 
opts yeah. for the language of hope <laughs> rather than lament or despair. So yeah. I want to ask you first, why, why did you make that strategic choice? But also what more broadly does the Christian tradition and its scriptures have to say about the place for, I'm going to just lump these together and you can piece them apart if you want, lament, nihilism, or despair? Yeah, I'm glad that you asked that because there's, I mean, this is this, that was actually a more complicated move than people often think about. I can tell you about what I meant and what I didn't mean. When I talk about African-American biblical interpretation as an exercise in hope, I think I'm reflecting historic, a historic reality. Is that when Black Christians have turned to these texts asking this question, is, is the God that I encounter in these texts a friend or an enemy? I think that as a whole, many Black Christians have said, I, or Black people have said, I see in this text a friend. This is just, these are just historical facts. Um, they're, they're, they're a significant percentage of the African-American community who eventually became Christians, saw in the biblical text a God who's a friend and not an enemy. Now, it's an exercise because exercise is something you don't always want to do, right? Sometimes I get up in the morning and I would rather lay down and, 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 and just like play on Twitter. But you know what? I say, if I want to live past 50, I need to get up and exercise. So the exercising is an act of the will where I say that I know this is for my good. And so I said that like an exercise in hope means that when I turn to the Bible, hoping for a God who speaks for my liberation, then that is important. Now, Black Christians are often, we could talk about hope and love in a way that isn't challenging to the wider culture. And so like hope is always going to sell. But what I wanted to do in the book is talk about a realistic hope that looked at the thing itself. When I mean the thing itself is that it didn't avoid the hard questions but it found hope on the other side of the hard questions. And so I take nihilism as a conversation partner and say, well, there, and I felt like there, there, there was a growing wave of sentiment that was saying that, well, there may even be like either like Afro-pessimism or uh, a black optimism, but both of those were rooted in some form of alienation from the Christian tradition. And I want to say, well, the Christian tradition itself forms the basis of, can form the basis of hope. And in particular, I like, I like to talk about the importance of asking questions in the right order. And you can reason from Black suffering and, and go back. But to be honest, the, the, the essential questions that, that, that matter in human existence or is there a God who created all things or is there not a God who created all things? And white supremacy and anti-Black racism can't undo creation itself. And for the Christian tradition, there is this idea of the resurrection of the dead. And if there is a God who calls dead things back to life and, and, and that God exists on the side of those, the stepped on peoples of the world, then that has implications for whether or not we have hope. And that comes you all the way back to the title of the book. And when we open up the Bible and we looked at it and said, wow, we, didn't, we don't have to construct the God who cares about us. The God who cared about us is, is, is depicted on the pages of the Old and New Testament. And I want to be unapologetic about that because I am not like, if Black Christianity is able to articulate its own account of what has happened to them, we can say as a people, we found these resources useful. And that usefulness of the resources remains true, even if a thousand academics say that we shouldn't view it that way. We're free 
to chart our own academic and intellectual path. So you have stuck with the tradition despite many of the, the internal and external tensions that it presents but, to you as, as a black man. You write though also about uh, many prominent black leaders who have, for instance, converted to the nation of Islam, or yeah. in some cases like uh, the old Princeton religious historian, Al Rabito, to older, more liturgical forms of Christianity that don't look quite so Baptist or Methodist, yeah. right? Uh, and they do this uh, often, they, they'll say this very explicitly, to distance themselves from the legacy of colonial oppression and slavery yeah. that just seem to be so closely tied up with American Christianity specifically. So what do you make of this phenomenon? And do you understand the reasons why, for instance, a young black person might be drawn to these alternate religious traditions as a means of escape? Yes. If um, The short answer is, and I tell people, although I disagree with um, it, it points with elements of like black radicalism or black secularism. There are few things more understandable than a black secularist who has, or black Christian who has read deeply in the history of Christianity, especially Christianity in America. And it's been shaking to their core because that is what happened in America. And obviously, you know, colonialization more broadly, it's just dark. And so, I understand. I talked about, I think I did. I have no idea. I got to go back and reread it, how honest I was in the book. But like, I considered the nation of Islam for exactly this reason. When I was in high school and middle school, but I, up, I, I ultimately opted for Christianity because I was convinced that certain things are true. And so I can understand how people are um, driven to despair. The whole reason I wrote the book is to say, I understand the emotional experiences that we are encountering. And here is one way that you can navigate those experiences and find hope on the other side. So to un so do I understand it? Yes. And even like something like orthodoxy that exists, like apart from the colonial, largely apart from the colonial um, history, uh, history of colonization in, in Africa in particular. So I, I understand all of those things. What we have to understand, and this is kind of the thing that I think that should humble humble the church. I don't think that the colonialization can unresurrect Jesus, but I do think it ought to give us some humility and understand the ways in which people struggle to make sense of like how to be a Christian on the other side of those things. And so this book is written with people who, who have those kinds of frustrations in mind. And it's in part saying, I understand why you feel that way, but here's another way of thinking about what it means to be a Christian. There's a body of literature called uh, Black Liberation Theology that is controversial in some white uh, and generally conservative circles because of the political message that it weaves throughout its reading of theology and scripture. I'm curious, since your book addresses both biblical studies and also is a constructive theological project, how do you situate your own work with respect to Black Liberation Theology? In as much as it's written for black people <laughs> and it's for and it's about liberation, I guess it's a work of liberation theology. But I wouldn't say I think it's not the liberation theology of people's imaginations. Mm -hmm. I guess I guess what I would say is if people want to understand like my my own opinion, is I've read a lot of Catholic analysis of liberation theology, and, and even, even interestingly enough, some of the work of people like Joseph Ratzinger and a couple of his encyclicals before he became the Pope. 
where there is a yes and a no to liberation theology. And I think there's elements of liberation theology that I find helpful and the elements of liberation theology where I disagree. And one of the things that is a little bit frustrating is that liberation theology is an important contribution to the, 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 the wider dialogue on the nature of Christianity, but it's not the only thing that Black Christianity has to say. And I think the giving space for a variety of voices is important. So your work is still quite recent, so there might be a, sam- a pretty small sample size for you to draw upon here. But I'm curious, as you were writing this book, what did you hope its reception would be within a broader, perhaps largely white, religious, or even evangelical context? And what so far have you begun to see uh, in terms of the responses to your book? Well, to be honest, like I didn't consider like that audience when I wrote the book. I had in particular in mind, basically me 15 years ago, um, what kind of book did I need to help me make sense of what it meant to be Black and Christian in America? And so I wanted a book that felt like, I wanted the person, the, the, the reader of color to open up, the, actually the Black reader in particular, open up this book and say, oh, I understand this world. Um, and so I was, I, I knew that there's going to be some people who didn't like it, but um, that was fine with me. What I would say is I've been surprised by the reception from across the theological spectrum. So I've gotten positive reviews from like black conservatives, by some black progressives. I've gotten positive reviews from white traditionalists and, and, and white progressives. And the only people who I think have been kind of negative are people who, who, I mean, everybody thinks that they're misunderstood when people disagree, but I think <laughs> that's kind of like, the academy. <laughs> I'm not wrong. You don't understand me. But I would say that like the people who have been most bothered by the book are the people who believe the social location is invaluable in the interpretive process. And that is a much more um, a worldview or epistemological difference than an actual difference with what I say. And the other thing is that people don't always understand nuance. And so when you ask the question as to whether or not this is a book of liberation, then that's an actually a, a complicated question to answer. And so there's places where there's continuity and discontinuity with elements of liberation theology. And people who hate liberation theology hate the fact that there are elements of continuity. That's lovely. So I, w- I want to conclude with this question that's framed by the great writer and thinker Howard Thurman. This is on page 80 of your book that you quote him. So Thurman writes, I can count on the fingers of one hand the number of times that I have heard a sermon on the meaning of religion, of Christianity, to the man who stands with his back against the wall. It is urgent that my meaning be made crystal clear. The masses of men live with their backs constantly against the wall. They are the poor, the disinherited, the dispossessed. What does our religion say to them? So I wanted to ask you, if the number of pastoral or theological voices is so few who talk in this way, can you help us identify the remnant, the faithful remnant who are speaking about the religion of the disinherited and who specifically right now should we be reading and listening to? I'll answer that. But as again, when you, when you, when you wrote, when you read that to me, something else jumped out to me. So I'm going to be a bad interview and, and, and give a slightly different answer. One of the things that like we have to do as an academy is stop punishing people for answering the question that Howard Thurman posed. Mm-hmm. 
And I feel in my own scholarship that sometimes because like I hear that and I just be like, thank you, Howard. The, the question of what does any of this have to do with the disinherited is a central question that like keeps me up at night. Yeah. And we write so many books that, that just, and I'm saying that every book has like, we, it is such a rarity to have like this concern driving biblical scholarship that it's just sad. And so even if, and so what I would say is that in our tenure committees, on our faculties, on our hiring, in our syllabi, the question of what does any of this mean for the disinherited has to become a central question. And if I have any contribution to give to the academy, it is that I'm going to stay laser focused on the disinherited peoples of the world. I'm not the only one who is doing it. There's tons of scholars who are doing it. But more importantly than even us scholars who are sitting in the in the academy are the people who are in the, who are in the actual um, pews and in the pulpits who are making sense to the actual disinherited peoples of the world, what any of this means. As you ask me, like, where's the center of this tradition? I would say that the center of this tradition is in the Black pulpit. And that if you want to understand, like, where are the Christians who are trying to wrestle with these texts and make sense of them, it's in the sermons of the Black church. So it's the preachers. I would also say along with that, though, there are like tons of places. I would say the, the Black Church Studies program at Duke is doing some interesting work with David Goatley. Um, I would say that Lisa Bowens at Princeton University wrote a book on um, African-American readings of Paul. Um, there's also, I think there's um, a, a Black Studies program at Princeton that is also important. So I would say they're like these places where they're doing important black church scholarship, there's some important um, black scholars and theologians um, at Emory. So I would say they're like these black voices need to be taken seriously and engaged with. Uh, people like Mitchie Smith, Brian Blunt, um, Lisa Bowens are some ones who in New Testament come to mind immediately. In Old Testament, I think of people like Naasha Jr. and Will Gaffney um, and Rita Weems. And so these are some people who I think whose work deserves um, a real close and careful reading. So we have our cloud of witnesses then. I want to thank you so much for spending some time with us today. This has been a really wonderful and, and educational conversation just for me and I hope for our listeners as well. I want to strongly recommend that folks go out uh, and purchase Esau's new book, Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. And uh, I hope we can have you back on again sometime. Thank you. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'll be, I'll be remiss if I didn't toss in the name Abraham Smith, who's doing some important work too. Cause I'm thinking about biblical scholars who people might want to look up and engage. That's great. Another star for the constellation. All right. Thank you so much, Esau. You're welcome. Bye. Thanks for listening to Call in Character, a podcast from the Institute for Leadership and Service at Valparaiso University. If you have any feedback or questions, Follow us on the Institute's Facebook page or send an email to lead.serve at valpo.edu. Our production team includes Aaron Morrison and Kim Neiman. Please subscribe to Call and Character on iTunes, Spotify, and other places podcasts are found. And leave us a comment and a rating. Until next time.